Now let's uh, turn then with a new to God's blessing to the book of Exodus and chapter 10 again. And the last three verses at verse 27. Whereas the verses uh, very solemnly tell us if Pharaoh and Moses part company for the last time. Verse 27, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. And then Pharaoh said to him, get away from me, take heed to yourself, and see my face no more, for in the day you see my face, you shall die. So Moses said, you have spoken well. In other words, you said it, I will never See your face again. And as we saw last week from the letter to the Romans, here we have a great illustration, a great example of the Lord hardening a heart. God has mercy on whom he wills, and as Paul says, whom he wills, he hardens. Now, over recent weeks in looking at the Exodus, uh, we've seen uh, God's judgment. Next week, God willing, we'll see his mercy. His judgment is in the plagues. His mercy is in the Passover, the provision that he makes, a way of escape. But we've been looking at the judgment, and we, we've seen it fall, first of all, on Egypt as a nation uh, for her sins which have uh, stretched out over hundreds of years before God. So God judged Egypt here. We also saw God judging Egypt's gods. That, of course, is a little more complicated and intricate. But we saw how the plagues were judging the system of idolatry that Egypt was involved in. The principalities and powers that were behind that system of idolatry God judges these. And last time, last Sabbath morning, we began to consider God's judgment falling upon Pharaoh himself as an individual and an unbeliever. And we saw that judgment in the light of the passage that we read uh, from Romans 9, where Paul tells us that Pharaoh is an example to us of a vessel that God shapes towards destruction. God takes clay of the same lump, fallen human nature, and out of that clay he makes some vessels to honour by adding grace to the clay, the power of the Holy Spirit, but others he leaves as they are, but shapes them for dishonour and for destruction. So God has mercy on some, but passes over the others. And you'll remember, as I said last Thursday, there are two Passovers, in a sense, taking place here. God's judgment is passing over Israel. He passes over their doors because of the blood on the doors. So the angel of death passes over, the judgment passes over. But there is a second Passover, this time it's God's mercy that passes over, and it passes over Pharaoh and a large part of Egypt. 
Not all of Egypt, as we'll see, God willing, next week, but a large part of Egypt. His mercy passes over. And of course, either his judgment or his mercy will pass over ourselves. And that is a, a very sobering and solemn thought. Either his mercy will pass over us or his judgment will pass over us. And the only way, of course, to ensure that his judgment passes over us is by coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the only refuge under the cover of his blood. So in any case, here is Pharaoh, a vessel of wrath that God is fitting at last for destruction. God hardens his heart. Now there's no doubt that God's hardening of Pharaoh's heart is a judgment upon Pharaoh for hardening his own heart. When we read the passage carefully, that becomes very plain. And I suppose the whole teaching of the Bible makes that plain too. God hardens the hearts of those who harden their own hearts. In other words, since Pharaoh chooses sin and chooses to reject the Lord, the Lord takes his grace away and leaves Pharaoh to his own sin and to its consequences. The result of that is that even before his death, Pharaoh is a dead man walking. God has let him go. Now I suppose if we were looking at that, if we were living there at the same time, we might not know that. We might not realise that. We might say, well, Pharaoh still has opportunities or Pharaoh could still come to faith. But that would be us seeing it from our side. The fact of the matter is that from God's side, the opportunities are finished. The door is shut and Pharaoh's heart has hardened. And that too becomes an extremely solemn thought when we consider it in our own situations too. The fact that right now in our own town, perhaps even in our own assembly, there are dead men and dead women walking. Only God knows who they are. Sometimes we might fear who they may be, although we can be wrong because God can smash a hard heart. As he says to Jeremiah, is not my word like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? So there are those with a hard heart that the Lord does soften. But nonetheless, that doesn't take away from the fact that there are dead men and dead women walking. And God knows them. And we should fear lest we be in that category ourselves. Pharaoh was sitting on his throne, but just ripe. For destruction. Now we saw how to understand that last week from what you would call a theological perspective in Romans chapter 9. Paul explains it for us. But let's now turn to the case study that Paul himself uses. Because of course when he takes an example of God's sovereignty in election and mercy, he uses Pharaoh as an example. And of course we are working our way through Exodus and one of the lives that comes before us is the life of this Pharaoh, in all likelihood, Thutmose III of the fiercely nationalistic Egyptian 18th dynasty. 
Here is the man that Paul says is an example of a heart that is hardened. So let's take a closer look at how these principles work themselves out in Pharaoh's life and experience with the prayer that God would help us to understand these things and to learn the needful lessons for ourselves. How does God harden his heart? How does Pharaoh harden his own heart? And I think, just to begin, let me say a word or two about the heart itself. By the way, the heart in Hebrew, in the Hebrew language and in Hebrew thought, is just a general term for the inside of you, the inner man, the inner person. It can include the intellect, it includes the will, the feelings, uh, the emotions, the affections, the dispositions, anything you like to speak of, all the distinctions you like to make are all included in this word heart. It is your inside, your soul, its thoughts. Now there's a difference, of course, in the Bible between a tender heart and a hard heart. We could use the word soft, but soft has unfortunate associations. If you speak of someone as maybe being soft-hearted, there's some kind of weakness attached to that. There's no weakness. Uh, Therefore, let's just use the word tender. There's a difference between a tender and a hard heart, a very important difference. Now, a healthy heart, the heart that God desires us to have and the heart that we need to have is a tender heart. A tender heart is is like soft wax. It's easy to impress something on it. It's easy to make an impression on it. And here, what's relevant are the words and the works of God. So if a heart is tender, then when God speaks or when God does something, it easily impresses the heart. When you hear the word, when you see God at work, your heart is easily impressed. Now, although we're born sinful and fallen, it would be wrong to say that the heart was hard from birth. The fact is that when we are born and when we are children, there is an openness and a receptiveness to the things of God. That's because we are made in his image and likeness. And even though we are not born again, that heart, when it is still at the very early stages of its existence, is easily impressed with the word and the works of God. Now, you've seen that. I suppose some of you know people who are now far away from God, but you remember in their childhood how easily they listened and how open they seem to wear to be to the things of God. But the problem is that even in the smallest child, the hardening agent is already present in the heart. Born with it, sin is a virus we're born with. It doesn't come in, it's there, and it begins its hardening work from the beginning. And you know what a hardening agent is like, whether it's cooking or building or anything of that kind, It just begins its work. And so it does in every single man, woman and child. And unless it is somehow counteracted, then the heart naturally becomes harder. 
And it can reach the point where, as Paul says, speaking about certain people when he's talking to Timothy, he speaks about people whose consciences, now that's one part of our heart, are seared like a hot iron. People who are past feeling, they, their consciences aren't really sensitive to right and wrong. <coughs> they can do evil with impunity. Now that's a, that's a terrible state to enter into. And, and you see people moving towards that. They, they think nothing of all kinds of evil. Seared with a hot iron. If, let's say that a hot iron is placed on your skin and it's taken away. <clears throat> now it's seriously damaged to the point where even if it heals you, you don't feel anything there. It's past feeling. See, their consciences <coughs> are seared like that. Sometimes the scriptures speak of a heart of stone. Or in my prayer, I, I referred to the Lord Jesus' first parable where he speaks about the the seed of the word being scattered and it falls on different kinds of soil but one kind of soil that it falls on is the wayside soil that's the part of the path the part of the field that the people walk on all the time and it just becomes so hard and when the seed falls on top of that it doesn't go anywhere it just lies there on the top and the devil takes it away that's representative of a hard heart somebody who's as, as they moved along in life, maybe yourself, you just become you know, immune, more or less, to the Word of God. Even if you're in church week by week, it just, goes, it just washes over you. And you say to yourself, well, I've, I've heard all that, and that, that doesn't mean too much to me anymore. The only softening agent is, of course, the Holy Spirit of God. And that Spirit chooses to show mercy on whomever he will have mercy. And as I said, we should be thankful that uh, even if a heart is hard, God can break it by the power of his Holy Spirit. Uh, but But there is nothing to be feared so much as a hard heart, really. Um, or, or to be sitting here today with a hard heart, not really moved or impressed by the word and the works of God. That may be a sign that your own destruction is not far away, or that you are a vessel being prepared for destruction. And we really, friends, need to take that to heart. Now, without spending just too much time on this, the Tender heart is obviously, like I said, a heart that is responsive to God's words and works. That means that the heart is humble. It recognises God's word. The heart is teachable. It's willing to be taught the word of God. And of course that heart is obedient. Its responsiveness affects the whole person and you are willing and eager to do what God wants you to do. There's a, a powerful example of a soft heart or a tender heart in Second Chronicles. We're told <coughs> concerning King Josiah, who was a godly king. Now, there was a reformation in Josiah's day. One of the things that had happened, strangely, is that the word of God had, had been forgotten and put aside. Seems amazing to us. But the Jews today, you may be surprised to know, seldom read the Old Testament. It's, it's an unknown book to them. They, they basically live on rabbinic commentaries and what the fathers have said about the Bible. That's, 
That's their standard uh, religious fear. It seems that in Josiah's day, people had fallen into that kind of trap. They were kept alive by what uh, rabbis and scribes were teaching them. And when they were repairing the temple, they found an original copy of the law of God. Uh, Shaphan took it in before the king and read the book. And we're told that when the king heard the words of the Lord, that he tore his clothes. And he said to his servants, go and ask the Lord for me, concerning the words that are found in this book. Because he says, it is God's wrath that is being poured out upon us. I can tell that. You know, he, He's now looking at the circumstances that are going on around him and he says, this is God's anger. I mean, this book is telling me that it is God's wrath that is coming upon us. Just as we've seen recently. I mean, if you've been interpreting uh, God's works uh, upon the Western world in particular, in, in COVID, you recognize the judgment of God upon his church especially. Uh, close virtually every church in the whole of the United Kingdom from north to south, and people still wonder if it's the judgment of God. Absolutely, it is the judgment of God upon both state and church. He says it is the Lord's wrath that is upon us because we have not kept the word of the Lord that we have been covenanted to keep. So they go to consult Huldah, the prophetess, who has a word for them. She says, tell the king... I will bring calamity on this place and on its inhabitants. I will bring the curses that are written in the book that they have read before the king. My wrath will be poured out on this place and it will not be quenched. But as for the king who sent you to inquire of the Lord, say this to him. Because your heart was tender... And because you humbled yourself before God when you heard his words against this place, and you humbled yourself before me, tore your clothes and wept before me, I have heard you, and I'll gather you to your fathers. You shall be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes will not see the calamity that I will bring on this place and its inhabitants. And they brought word back to the king. Because your heart was tender. And where did you see the tenderness of the heart? Listening to the word. Receiving it as the word of God. Humbling himself. Being teachable. And as we see, reforming the nation according to the word of God. Now then, let's look at Pharaoh in the light of these things. When God speaks to Pharaoh, and really his interaction with Moses all the way through here, from chapters 11 right through to 12, is really God interacting with Pharaoh, of course. It's God speaking to Pharaoh. How does Pharaoh respond? Well, first of all, he responds with willful ignorance. Can you just turn back in your Bibles for a moment uh, to chapter 5? And the very first encounter between Moses and and fail. Chapter 5, at the end of verse 1, God speaks to Pharaoh through Moses, saying, Let my people go. Chapter 5, verse 1, the end of the verse, Let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. 
It's not even the whole agenda that comes out there. And Pharaoh said, now listen to this, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. Who is the Lord? Now, that's willful ignorance. That's his response to God's word. Willful ignorance. And I'm calling it willful ignorance because he chooses that ignorance. It's obvious that he's chosen it all his life. Pharaoh, like Moses, was an uneducated man. He was raised in his father's court. All the wisdom of the Egyptians was his. And even if the 18th dynasty pretty much rejected what had come before because they were so fiercely nationalistic, still everything that the Lord's people had done in this land was part of history, part of culture. God's people had been in Egypt for nearly 400 years. Remember, that's a blessing. Just as it was a blessing for Canaan to have the witness of Abraham and his family, so it was a blessing for Egypt to have the presence of Jacob and his family. Particularly Joseph as the Prime Minister of the nation who saved Egypt in famine, increased the wealth of Egypt when other nations were starving, and at, Pharaoh, at Joseph's instigation, with the level of taxation, the power of Pharaoh himself became greater than it had ever been before. But we're told about Thutmose III's grandfather, I think it was, that he knew not Joseph. There arose a king in Egypt which knew not Joseph, i.e. didn't want to know Joseph. It's one thing to be ignorant. It's another thing to choose ignorance. We all know there's a difference between these two things. When Pharaoh says here, I know not the Lord, he's not stating a fact. He's revealing a choice. Well, he is stating a fact. He doesn't know the Lord. But he's saying more than that. He's saying, I don't, I don't want to. Who is the Lord, he says. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? It's, it's, it's arrogance, really. It's not just ignorance. It's arrogance. And, of course, it's arrogance that chooses to be ignorant and to stay ignorant. And, of course, so much of the ignorance in our own nation, which sometimes we make the mistake of saying, well, people can help it, they hardly know anything. It's never been so easy to know everything about the Word of God. It's never been so easy. It's not just the fact that our nation has such a rich and full history of the knowledge of God. A covenanted nation, a nation of reformation, a nation of so much heritage and truth. It's not just that. It's just the fact that sitting in your own room at the touch of a button, you can read or find out anything that you want to know that has been said or done concerning God. At the touch of a button, in front of you on a screen. Never been so easy. There is no excuse, no justification for ignorance about God. The fact of the matter is, you don't want to know. People don't want to know. Of course there are some who do, but there's a huge number who don't. And Pharaoh didn't. 
he didn't want to know. Who's the Lord that I should obey him? Who indeed, well, he was going to find out. And we all will find out. Ignorance is never smart, unless Paul says it's ignorance of evil. Concerning good, he says, in understanding, let us be men. In evil, he says, let us be children. Let us stay ignorant of that. So beware of willful ignorance. Of course, that's rooted in pride. And just when the last plague is coming, God effectively says to Pharaoh, you have not humbled yourself before me. In other words, the whole exchange, everything that's happened between us is just from your proud heart. You don't want to know. So here, that's the first thing you need to examine yourself about today. You're here today, the word of God is coming to you. Do you want to be ignorant about it? Do you want to just stay ignorant? Or do you want to really find out and know? That's the first indication whether you are a vessel prepared for mercy or a vessel being prepared for destruction. And second, as well as willful ignorance, uh, there is a deliberate rejection when God gives him a sign. Now Pharaoh, of course, famously asks for a sign. And at one level, you know, why not? Here's somebody coming from nowhere claiming to speak on behalf of God. Well, show me a sign, he says. He asked for that. When Pharaoh speaks to you and says, show a sign for yourself, then God said to Aaron, cast your rod before Pharaoh and it will become a serpent. And Aaron does that. He, He casts his rod to the ground, you remember. The rod becomes a serpent. Aaron, as he was told, grabbed the serpent by the tail and it becomes a rod again. It's a a, a visual aid. It's a sermon to Pharaoh. The serpent was his symbol of his power and authority given to him by the Son God. This is God's way of saying to him, uh, I take you by the tail and uh, I rule over you. Of course, the magicians were able to duplicate this miracle. Aaron's rod swallows up their rods. That's God's way of saying, I am in control here. I am Lord of Egypt. I am your Lord, Lord of every soul, Lord of everyone. But Pharaoh rejects this sign. Why does he reject it? Well, first of all, because he sees his own magicians perform a similar Now I mentioned already that there is a difference between what the magicians are able to do and what Moses and Aaron are able to do. The magicians are not able to take any plague away, but they're able to replicate one or two of them. But Pharaoh, of course, comes to the conclusion that Moses and Aaron are just really gifted magicians. But at what point does a rejection of God's sign become foolish and stubborn? That's the question. After all, at a certain point during the plagues, even the magicians pull back and they say, this is the finger of God. Remember that? We're not, we're not taking part in this contest anymore. In other words, their hearts weren't that hard. Not as hard as Pharaoh's. There was a point at least where they pulled back and said, we're not taking to do with this. You can sometimes see that in people. They, they get the sense that 
that God is at work or that God is present and they say, well, I'm, I'm just backing off from this thing they were going to do. Maybe it's even persecuting Christians or being involved with something like a seance or an Ouija board or something like that and say, well, I'm just backing off here. There's something about this that I don't want to be involved in. And they recognize that the nature of the plagues are a communication from God that is directly attacking their system of idolatry. There's something going on here. It's beyond the power of darkness. It's higher than the power of darkness. They call it the finger of God. But Pharaoh's not convinced. Why? Well, because he doesn't want to be. And if you really won't want to be convinced, you won't be. The Pharisees, of course, famously came to Jesus and said, Master, we would see a sign from you. Now, they asked that question after the Lord had performed several signs, including the loaves and the fishes. We would see a sign from you. Jesus says, no more signs. But just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, so the Son of Man shall be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. No more signs. Because they saw the signs but didn't believe. That's what Christ said to them. If you want a sign, how many signs would be good enough for you? I mean, think about it. Or if people say to you, well, uh, you know, if I could see a sign. Well, what sign? What sign would you like? And are you absolutely sure it would convince you? I mentioned the other week when we were looking at these things how magicians can still deceive people. Down through the years, people have been enchanted by, by magicians. Even recently, the most famous was Dynamo. And you've seen some of his magic tricks, which of course seem to me to be deliberately trying to replicate some of what Christ did. For example, he walks across the Thames on water. He uh, levitates. You've seen the one possibly where he just suddenly uh, raises up uh, into the sky and everyone around is wondering how, how on earth he's doing that. Or the other one where he's multiplying the fish. He's pouring fish out of a bucket and they're endlessly coming out of a fish. Now, if I was to say to you, do you believe that that's actually happening? Do you believe that he's performing these miracles? You would say, no. <clears throat> and I would say to you, well, well why, why do you not believe that he's actually doing that, that he's performing a miracle? And you'd say, well, it's obviously a trick. Because your worldview doesn't allow for it, does it? It doesn't allow for it. So you say, well, there's got to be some explanation for that. I mean, that's what you would say. Is it not? That's probably what you say. There's got to be some explanation for that. Is it any different when it comes to Christian things? You say to me that you'd like to see a sign. Well, well what then? Let's say you go out the door and... Uh, the name of Jesus somehow is spelt out by a cloud formation there. Are you going, are you going to, do, you, do you really think that you're going to believe the gospel then? Do you really think so? Or if you said, well, if, um, if somebody, if so-and-so is converted next week, I'll take that as a sign. Really? Think so? Do you not think there's going to be some other explanation for that? Do you not think there's always going to be a physical or psychological explanation for every single sign that you would ask for? Of course there is. I mean, how long does that game go on for? And do you think that it's all, that's what it's all about anyway? Of course it's not. 
Conversion is about the truth of God. It's not about signs. Conversion is about believing the truth about God, yourself, heaven and hell, death and life. That's what conversion is about. When Christ came into the world, he didn't come as a wonder-working magician. There were distinctive signs performed to authenticate, to help people to believe. But it's the truth that they had to believe. And at the end of the day, if they didn't want to believe the truth, they wouldn't believe the signs either. It's only as the truth was coming home to them that the signs began to speak. And that's the way it functions. It's the truth that sets us free. But there's no doubt that the clearer the sign is, the more guilty our rejection is too. The rich man, when he was in torments in hell, of course asked this strange thing. He, he, he asked that Lazarus, the poor man, would go back to his brothers and warn them about the reality of hell. And and Christ's answer was, these people have the Bible. They've got Moses and the prophets. And if they're not going to listen to the Bible, neither would they listen if someone came back to them from the dead. Now you say, oh, come on, that's different. If someone came back from the dead, I'd listen. Would you? Would you? Would you really? It wasn't long after Jesus said that, that somebody did come back from the dead. Mary and Martha's brother, Lazarus, came back from the dead. What was the result of that miracle on those who saw it? They were more determined than they were before to put Christ to death. So much for believing if someone rose from the dead. There's always an explanation after all, isn't there? There's always a psychological or physical explanation even if somebody rises from the dead, whether they weren't really dead. Is that not what they still say about Christ? I mean, Christ's own uh, resurrection was as well attested a fact as you could hope to have. 500 people at least saw him on one occasion after his death and say, oh, well, maybe he, people say maybe he wasn't really completely dead. Oh, well, there you go. Like, you believe what you want to and you disbelieve what you want to. That's the facts. And Pharaoh doesn't believe because he doesn't want to believe. Just as you don't believe because you don't want to believe. It's nothing to do with science. You've had plenty of science. We really do. Plenty of science. But you don't want to believe them. There's an amazing example of how resistant Pharaoh is. Because from the fifth plague onwards, you'll remember that the land of Goshen, where is the Israelites live, is actually exempt from the fifth plague onwards. Even the, even the shocking darkness that came upon Egypt uh, doesn't affect Goshen at all, from the fifth plague onwards. And when Pharaoh hears that the plague doesn't affect Goshen, we're actually told that he sends investigators into the land of Goshen to see whether that is actually so or not. So he, he's that determined, you know, he gets the reports that none of this has affected Goshen. So he sends investigators. Isn't it amazing how, how eager he is to establish his own unbelief and how little work he does uh, to establish faith? But again, that's the way it goes. So there's a blindness in his mind. He just won't see, even when it's in front of his face. 
There's also a stubbornness in his heart. God is actually teaching Pharaoh, even through these plagues. That's an element that we need to notice, because it's not all judgment. There is mercy too. There's no denying that, that these plagues are opportunities for Pharaoh to actually recognize who he is and who he's dealing with. It's an interesting thing as it goes on that he starts to use the name of the Lord, Jehovah. For example, in chapter 8 and, uh, and in, in, in verse 8, he says, um, Pharaoh calls for Moses and Aaron and says, Entreat the Lord that he may take away the frogs from me and for my people. And I will let the people go that they may sacrifice to Jehovah. Now his first response was, who's the Lord? By the time God's interacting with him, he's starting to use the name. And in fact, hard as his heart is, and hardening as it is, there's a threefold response on Pharaoh's part to God that we don't expect. And one is that he asks for prayer. Three times he asks for prayer. He asks Moses to ask God that the flies would be taken away. After the hail too, there's a, there's a similar request. Entreat the Lord that there may be no more thunder and hail because it is enough. And in chapter 10, after the locusts, in verse 17, he says, Please forgive my sin this once and entreat Jehovah your God that he may take this death away from me. That's amazing, really, at one level. But then again, these prayers contain everything we expect in an unbeliever's prayer and contain nothing that we expect from a believer's prayer. Unbelievers do pray. Why doesn't he pray himself? Why doesn't he actually ask God? Why just ask others to pray? Are, are you like that? Is it possible that you ask other people to pray? I've had that. I've had people who say to me, will you pray for me? And they're, they're not Christians themselves. And I sometimes have to say to them, pray for yourself. I will pray for you, but you need to pray for yourself. Everybody needs to pray for themselves. I mean, it's one thing to recognise, maybe, that you need some kind of help. It's another thing to, to push God out of it and say, well, you ask God to help me, please. I'd rather stay at a bit of a distance, but if you ask God, God will help me, but it kind of puts no obligations on me. And why just ask for plagues to stop? I mean, why ask to get rid of the frogs? You've got bigger problems than frogs, Phil. Bigger problems than lies, than flies and gnats and locusts. What about your sin? What about the Egyptian bondage? What about the widows and the slaves who are knee-deep in mud? What about all that? What about the fact that you're building your country and your economy on the back of God's people whom you're slaying and trampling underfoot? Ask God about that. And of course, we can go to hospital and ask God to make me better. Take away this disease from me. Make me healthy. Is that all that matters? Do you think that that's what God is primarily concerned about? Your disease? No. You have bigger problems than that. 
Pharaoh did too. Amazingly, as well as asking for prayer, Pharaoh actually at one point confesses sin, which is not something we expected to hear from his lips. In chapter 9 and verse 27, lo and behold, and this is after I think the eighth plague, Uh, verse 27, Pharaoh sent and called for Moses and Aaron and said to them, chapter 9, verse 27, I have sinned this time. The Lord is righteous and my people and I are wicked. Entreat the Lord that there may be no more thunderings. I've sinned. It took him a long time to say that, to use even that word. He's not the only unbeliever who realised that they were sinners. Judas Iscariot, before he went out and hanged himself, said, I have betrayed innocent blood. King Saul, of course, said when he was persecuting God's man, David, he said, I have played the fool and I have erred exceedingly. But if he's really going to confess the sin, why not confess it to God? Against to Moses, he confessed. Who's Moses? Who am I? It's God your business is with. Why not confess it directly to God? And why does he say, I have sinned this time? This time? What about last time? And the time before and the time before? He confesses God's righteousness and his own wickedness. But every single time when the crisis passes, what does he do? He backs down. He goes into default mode. It's the same old Pharaoh when the trouble is past and finished. In fact, you turn, turn with me to chapter 8 and verse 15. There's an interesting word used here. Chapter 8 and verse 15. This is in connection with the frogs. When Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and did not heed them, as the Lord had said. When Pharaoh saw there was relief, in the Hebrew, an unusual word for relief, which means space, room. Let's just call it breathing space. When he saw that there was space, he went back to what he was before. All these prayer requests, the confessions, there's nothing to them because as soon as the crisis passes, the prayers pass, the resolutions pass. As the prophet said about Israel, when he was mourning Israel's failure to recognize God's chastisement, sometimes there would be a brief flicker of repentance. And you sometimes see that. You sometimes see it even nationally, sometimes like, like a little flicker, you know, are, are people at last going to speak about God, maybe? Um, and then it passes away, and the prophet said, your goodness is like a morning cloud that vanishes away. Just a little bit of hope for a moment, and then it's gone. And that's the way it was with Pharaoh. You'd think that when the man says, I, I've sinned, and God's righteous, and I'm wicked, pray for me. You'd think that's a man who's going to change. But when the crisis passes, like I say, so does everything else passes. Pass. Just a state of desperation and need. And we see that 
Um, we all know that. I mean, I've known people who, when they were really ill, they were going to do this and that. And uh, they were going to start going to church. Maybe it was even as basic as... Never mind becoming a Christian, but they were going to start going to church. Oh, they're home from hospital. No church. Or maybe once. And it's gone. It's forgotten. Because the heart's hard. There's no atheists in a foxhole or in a sinking ship, as people used to say. Well, that's true. But once they're off the sinking ship and onto dry land, it's as you were. The fact of the matter is the things that are really holding Pharaoh are his power, his own perceived sense of his own dignity, the fact that the Israelite slave population is over one million people and his GDP in Egypt is largely dependent on them and he doesn't want that source of free labour leaving the country. These things matter to Pharaoh. We know what matters to ourselves. But of course he, he tries to bargain with God as we can all do. At one point he says to Moses, okay, he says, you can worship, but not in the wilderness, just stay in Egypt. Moses says, no. After the eighth plague, the locusts, Pharaoh's own counsellors come to him and say, look, just let these people go. Let them, because a lot of what what economic hit we're going to take, or, or what loss of pride the nation's going to sustain, just let these people go, because they said, our country is finished. They've just seen the devastation of their crops and everything and the livestock. Our country is finished. Just please let them go. And Pharaoh says, okay, he says, I'll let the men go. Just the men. Of course, he's got his own tactic there because if if the wives and the children are left, the men are going to come back. After the darkness, the three-day thick darkness, when the whole country comes to a standstill, he says, all of you can go except your flocks and herds. Well, what are the people supposed to live on? Although, interestingly, Moses' major concern was, was not food supply. It's worship and sacrifice to God. That was his major concern. Good on Moses. That's what should be at the heart of every Christian's concern all the time. But you notice Pharaoh. Just let me keep your flocks and your herds. The last of all, of course, he says, just clear out of here. Don't come back. Don't let me see your face again. And if I see your face again, I'll kill it. Yes, Pharaoh, but Moses says the same to you. Because when Moses is walking out of there, it's God that's walking away as well. It's God that's walking away. And the fact of the matter is, with Moses hardening his heart and God hardening his heart, The fact of the matter is that Pharaoh's rejection of God is actually God's rejection of Pharaoh. And you understand that your rejection of God may well come to a point where it's God's rejection of you. That passage that we read in uh, Exodus, I can't remember, is it 8 or 9, where God speaks at length to Pharaoh and says, for this purpose I have raised you up that I may show my power in you, is a turning point because From that point, we read that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Up to that point, it's Pharaoh and God both working, but from that point, it's God. Essentially, God is just closing the door. And the plagues have less and less of a character of an opportunity to change and more and more of a character of sealing a doom. And so from that point onwards, God is just moving away. And when Pharaoh says, get out, God says, 
I'm leaving you. You're not dismissing me. I am leaving you. And maybe it can all reach a point in your life where you say, I don't want you to be bothering my life, interfering. You can even say that about a minister of the gospel. Please stop talking to me. Stop talking to me about my soul or about heaven and hell. And God says, very well, I will. I will. And to be left to the hardness of our own heart is the worst thing that can happen to us. You need to be afraid that God does not do that to you. And let me close by just highlighting what finally happens to Pharaoh. What finally happens to him. We're told once Israel do leave after the Passover. Well, just read it. Exodus 10 at verse 1. Exodus 10 verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine before him. Sorry, move forward to chapter 14. I don't know why I said 10. Chapter 14. This is after Israel have moved out and they're coming to the Red Sea. And suddenly they're hemmed. Chapter 14, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses and said, Speak to the children of Israel that they turn and camp before Pihahiroth, between Migdal and the sea, opposite baal Sethon. You shall camp before it by the sea. Now, that's actually God taking Israel to a place they don't really want to go, um, where they're going to be hemmed in. But notice God's purpose. For Pharaoh will say concerning the children of Israel, they are bewildered by the land. They're confused. And the wilderness has closed them in. Then I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will pursue them. And I will gain honor or glory over Pharaoh and over all his army that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. Verse 5. And it was told the king of Egypt that the people had fled And the heart of Pharaoh and his servants was turned against the people. And notice what they said. Why have we done this? That we have let Israel go from serving us. It's the economy. The economy. So we made ready his chariot. And took his people with him. Six hundred choice chariots. And all the chariots of Egypt. With captains over every one of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. King of Egypt. And he pursued the children of Israel. He changes his mind. He just can't take a defeat. The heart is so hard. And the economy matters so much. And it's an interesting thing, you see. Let me close by saying this, that the the single act God does of, of bringing Israel to a point of difficulty has a twofold purpose. Test Israel's faith and also to give free reign to Pharaoh's unbelief. Vessels of mercy being tested and refined and a vessel of destruction. Well, you know what happens. In the go with the chariots, the sea comes down and Pharaoh and his army are no longer. His body is a carcass floating in the wilderness. Um, It's no wonder 
the writer to the Hebrews tells us to beware all of ourselves when God speaks to us when God shows us signs beware lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God do not harden your heart as of course they did in the wilderness take heed lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin let us pray Lord our God we pray for tender hearts for ourselves and for our children we pray that when the word is read and sung and preached that we will be responsive to it responding in humility and in reverence and with a desire to obey. Preserve us, O Lord, from that state of soul where these things just don't matter too much to us anymore. When the signs that we see and the words that we hear have little effect upon our hearts, unmoved by the words and works of God. Preserve us, O Lord, and may the Holy Spirit soften us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Our uh, last singing from God's Word is in Psalm 81 and at verse 8. O thou, my people, give an ear, I'll testify to thee, to thee, O Israel, if thou wilt but hearken unto me. Now this is a call to Israel to listen, to the church herself. In midst of thee there shall not be any strange God at all. Don't go back to Egypt, nor unto any God unknown, thou bowing down shalt fall. I am the Lord, Jehovah thy God, which did from Egypt land thee guide. I'll fill thy mouth abundantly. Do thou it open wide. And this is a terrible response. Yet my people to my voice would not attempt to be. And even my chosen Israel, he would have none of me. May that not be true of us, born and raised in the church of God. Verses 8 to 11. Let's stand to sing. Oh, Yeah. Uh-huh.
Spirit be with you all. Amen.